to a large degree, as much as possible, the more you can control of your production, the better. But also, I would say, you have to know what, know what you're not good at and not go into things that you shouldn't be doing. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the North American Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. Sitting here with David Ludmar, who is the president of ELC, and I'm very excited to talk to David today. David and I have known each other quite a long time in this industry. How are you today, David? I'm well, Rick. It's good to see you in this format. Tell us about uh, a little bit what ELC is, and in particular, as the owner and chief executive of the company, what is it that you do throughout the year to run and manage a braid and accessories company? ELC Industries was a company that uh, I founded with my father in 2006. It was um, formed as the result uh, of an asset purchase with the Rice Braiding Company, which had been in business since the late 19th century. Uh, they were a supplier of our of my family's older company, uh, Eisman Ludmark Company, and they were a very valuable source. And we needed not just a valuable source of braid and trimmings, but also a domestic source of braids and trimmings, because we had government contracts that needed their products. And they were having some difficulties with their management. They had been purchased previously in 2001, uh, about maybe a week or two before 9-11 happened. And so the new owners... That's Rice Braid that was purchased? That was, that was the A.H. Rice Company, previous com- previously purchased in 2001. Uh, and they immediately stepped into, of course, a very difficult situation. Among the many industries that we serve are the airline, hospitality, travel industries, which were on hold, which unfortunately is being echoed now due to the pandemic. But the ownership was in South Carolina, and the company had been in north, uh, sort of, I guess, western Massachusetts in a town called Pittsfield, Massachusetts, for, again, a century and or more. And the operations just couldn't really get set up there. So the Purchasing owners had a business in South Carolina. They moved the business to South Carolina in 2005 and really couldn't get it going. Again, the plant they had in Pittsfield was an older building. It was sort of like, I guess what you would picture, like the Pirates of the Caribbean ship, where you're worried a floorboard is going to give way and you'll, <laughs> you won't know what's under there. Uh, so they moved it to South Carolina to a really nice, still a very old building, but a poured concrete floor, all one level, nice and flat, well lit an air condition, which of course you have to have down there, but the owner really couldn't get it going because he didn't understand the uniform industry. And I think anyone watching this podcast probably will know the uniform industry has its own, um, I don't want to call it idiosyncrasies, but it has, like any industry, it has uh, acquired knowledge you need to make it success, to make your business successful within that environment. So because we had our contacts in the industry and because we needed them, I'll make a long story short and say that we purchased the assets of the rice braiding operation in 2006. And the night we, the night we uh, consummated the deal was in, at an NAUMD convention, actually, in Las Vegas. And we were excited. And we had dinner with some of the folks who helped us manage the company in the early years. And we celebrated. Uh, and <laughs> oddly enough, 
my uh, my wife wasn't feeling well after the celebration, and so we thought that was odd because we really didn't have too much to drink or anything like that. And so, of course, we found out the next morning that she was pregnant with our first child. So, on the heels of purchasing this company, I was going to have to travel to South Carolina from my home in New York while my wife uh, was was pregnant. So, we did that, and the purchase of the company was a very a very difficult situation because they they were um, they were troubled. They hadn't been. Uh, they hadn't been successful, and they had outstanding debt, et cetera. And so even though we were structuring this as an asset purchase, what the lawyers told us was just because you don't actually owe what people think they owe, if they come after you, you could lose your business just trying to fend them off. And by the time you've proven yourself right, you could be paying lawyers and everything else. So we had a lot of risk. Uh, but we decided to take the plunge and do it because at some point you have to move forward. And so we purchased the company and we have, uh, at that time, we were operating out of only a smaller footprint within the overall space. But now we um, we run and operate a 55,000 square foot braiding operation uh, and trimmings. They also do weaving. And for those of us who are true braiders, we know that braiding and weaving are, uh, they're not apples and oranges. They're apples and uh, accordions, nothing to do with each other, uh, other than the fact they all start with raw yarn. Uh, but for us, they're very different operations. So uh, we added that line, uh, the weaving line, to the traditional braiding operation and turned it into a place that sells all different types of trimming. We now make a self-trim line, which is fabric that's folded over. And so basically, rather than think of ourselves as just a braiding company, we've envisioned ourselves as a trimming company. So basically, if you have a pair of trousers and you're a policeman or you're working a casino or you're on a cruise line, uh, everyone can supply a pair of navy trousers, but that specific striping is what makes it unique for the for the industry or for the department or for the military or for whomever we uh, we we make it. So that's sort of a rambling answer to how we how we got here, which I'm not sure it sets up the actual answering of your question or if that was the answer to the question. <laughs> it raises lots of other questions, though. Thank you for the history of how rice braid, which those who have been in the industry a long time know. Uh, and and those of us remember Eisman Ludmar, um, the the namesake company that your family uh, had had their hand in originally creating. And so now the next generation, David Ludmar, has merged these operations together and runs a fifty five thousand square foot facility. And what braid is just super complicated. And I am um, startled when you talk about it and you've told me about it because it has been described to me where one machine can have a hundred different pieces of thread that are rolling together and I'm not using the right verbs I'm sure but can you talk to us for a minute about what you just said and why braid is so much more complicated than weaving sure sure the the easiest way to think about it is that with braid, you have a limited number of ends. So the simplest one would be if you're braiding, you know, if you're braiding someone's hair, you put it to three hanks of hair and you put them over and under, over and under, uh, but intertwining as you pull and eventually get to the end, and that's the end. A loom, think more like a Persian rug, where it's an over-under. And so it's basically that they, a woven product will be perpendicular ends called a warp and a weft, and a braid will be a number of ends that intertwine with each other continuously. 
which I don't know if that actually makes it any clearer, <laughs> but I think that's... Uh, I mean, we can all picture, mm -hmm. I love the braiding of hair. We can all picture sure. that you've got three threads mm -hmm. that are braiding, but you have much more complicated braids than yes. three ends, as you call it. Mm -hmm. So when you buy a company, you buy all the assets and the machinery and everything, you know, the, the brand name and the customer base, et cetera. But you don't also know that it comes within the nooks and crannies of the building, little books written in German describing how some engineer 200 years ago created the, the patterns and the pads that these machines were then built to reproduce. So you could have for a very simple, uh, the U.S. Army uses what's called a eighth of an inch soutache on the outgoing ASU uniform, the Army Service Dress Blue uniform. And that is a relatively simple braid that's made with only nine ends and they all come together. The new uniform on the dress cap, the new dress green uniform, uh, the AGSU, which is known as the pinks and greens, on the top of the Army Service dress cap is a braid that has maybe 85 ends that come together in a basket weave pattern, and so there's a lot of different ends. But everything starts with yarn on a spool, either dyed or plain, most cases dyed, in different, in different um, materials. So we braid polyester, we braid nylon, we braid cotton, we braid mohair still. Everyone hears the, uh, the mohair suit. Mohair is still, still, still used uh, by the military and by Civil War recreation groups. There are a lot of folks who still use mohair, um, which is uh, mohair comes from the scraping of a belly of a goat. That's where those hairs come from. It's still the same technology that's been used for a very, very long time. So a lot of our braiding machinery was made in the early 20th century. And there are patent numbers on each of them. You know, a list of patent numbers all from the, from the early 20th century. And those machines, although old, we have tons of parts for them. And they are, to our understanding and our knowledge, better than new machines. These are just bobs of thread that run in tracks on the same machine. And the yarn is pulled off in different patterns and comes together to make these braids. The new machines, the steel isn't strong enough to hold up to uh, to the constant use. So our old machines, you put enough grease on them and keep them well kept, which we do. They should be able to last well beyond my time in the braid industry. Do you have to uh, machine some parts? We do, and we have uh, we have very skilled skilled members of our team who can who can do that. We have a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, there's a man many in the industry know named Dick Cizak who had worked in Massachusetts for rice braid for uh, let's just say a long time. If he listens to this, I don't want to give it a years, but uh, he's been working with them for a very long time, and he has a tremendous amount of knowledge which he is um, proud to impart with folks on our team, which is a real a real uh, benefit to us as a whole for the for the organization. And we can mill some of our own parts. Uh, we have a lot of replacement parts. They're made to be interchangeable. They're really, they're very well engineered. And I should mention that the weaving machinery we have is all state-of-the-art, Swiss looms, uh, very, very, very modern. They can be calibrated electronically to different speeds, different gears. It's, uh, that's much more, much more uh, technically modern. And that's needed for a product like a, like, like a, woven, a woven trimming. So that would be the epaulettes would be a woven trimming? Well, the a woven trimming would be, for example, the U.S. Army uniform uses a lace. We call it a lace. Uh, but lace is a woven product. And it goes on their trouser striping, the same as the rest. It would be converted into product. So the rice braid in South Carolina just makes those trimmings. That's all they do. 
the company in New York is still a vibrant company, and we and we use the rice braids very much the way we did before to make uniform accessories. So an epaulette, for example, for an airline that would have stripes on it, we start with fabric, uh, but then we apply the braid that we make in South Carolina in different styles, and in some cases woven laces as well, use that striping to make the finished epaulette. We make in South Carolina a cord. Again, starts with starts with just yarn on a spool, but we turn it into a stuffed tubular cord that we then ship up to New York, and then we turn them into the U.S. Army Infantry Cord, which is a blue uniform, certainly for those of us who are watching really anything. You, know, you watch the Super Bowl, you watch the inauguration, uh, the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, uh, anything like that. It has our braids all, all over, and I keep I, I watch those things in an odd way because I'm always looking at the braid. You walk through the airport, everyone's worried about what, what gate they're at. I'm looking at what the pilots are wearing on their shoulders and uh, what their uniforms look like. <laughs> That's my focus, can I say. <laughs> I, I'm, I do the same thing. I notice uh, often when we're at uh, restaurants or we're traveling or even just at the grocery store, I will always notice what employees are wearing. It's a, a job um, blessing or curse, I don't know, that, you know, in this industry. And you grew up with that, so you've you've always done that. You probably have memories of dad pointing things out when you know the family was out and about. Absolutely, my uh, my grandfather started the company in 1955, uh, and back then it was really only two products. We imported. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm talking about mohair. Now I'm talking about rabbit fur. But it was a uh, it was a rabbit fur fur felt that was in the dress cap of the original MacArthur cap. Uh, and the embroidered, what they call the scrambled eggs, the leaf pattern. And those are the only two products. We got them from overseas. They were always able to be purchased overseas despite, despite U.S. preferences in manufacturing. He was one of the first people to do that. And the path of our company is actually funny. We've gone in the opposite direction of everyone. So at that time, he was only importing products. He was one of the first Americans to go over to some of these places in, in Asia to develop these. There are pictures of him slides <laughs> there was there there's slides that's a conversion project uh of him over there but since that time we have gone in the opposite direction as all of u.s manufacturing where back then almost all of our business was imported and naumd originally didn't want us as a member because we were not an american manufacturer uh bernie leper who was the as a many watching this although i guess increasingly few would remember uh but we certainly remember bernie and he was representing american companies making things in america and since that time it has slowly ceased where folks have been offshoring more and more whereas now we make probably 90 95 percent of our products here in the u.s there's some materials that aren't available some of the hand embroideries we still get for logo crests or for uh nautical insignia that we use but the vast majority of what we do is right here in the U.S. manufacturing. That is so interesting. I, I feel like that's the that's the heart of this conversation, my friend, because uh, so many that you and I talked to in recent years, one of their biggest struggles is they feel like they can't manufacture here and mostly because they can't find people to work the machinery or learn the machinery or, you know, don't even have the skills to operate a single needle machine, let alone the variety of skills you just described, which is how to operate or learn to operate this 100-year-old patented beast of a machine um, that has dozens of ends running at the same time. 
And you mentioned that you have this new weaving technology, and that's going to require a whole different side of the brain that, you know, that involves software likely. And so talk to us about how, how your staffing uh, for ELC has been working. It sounds like it's working well, but that must be a challenge. Well, the model we have here in New York is it's a business. And so it's hard to say that it's a family, of course, but it is certainly familial. And we have people who've been working for us for 20, 25 years. We have extremely low turnover. And that model has is something that we demonstrate to our folks through the way we kind of work together. So if you're going to be with someone for 20 years, there are times when every person is going to have a personal difficulty where people are going to need to step away. And so, yes, we have employee uh, manuals and yes, we follow things. But I think if you show people, I will, I will not forget this, but very early on when I started working there, there was a woman who worked for us who had her house broken into and they took her stuff. And my father bought her a television set. And I thought to myself, that was just, it was just the practicality of that was something that said, look, at the end of the day, we all, you know, this was a long time ago. Now we have devices and we're doing technology now, but then you had a TV. That was it. Right. I mean, and I think that was not something you had to do. It wasn't something he needed to do, uh, but he just did it because he felt like that was someone what they needed right then. And that same person is still working for us. And she came to me uh, about three or four months ago and said that her mother who does live in a different country was ill. Uh, and she was finally allowed to travel to see her mother after the COVID restrictions had let up a little bit. And she said, I need, you know, I need to take a month. And I said, that's fine. Take a month. You know, it was, that was her time. You don't have to worry about your job when you, when you come back here, uh, because she was someone who has given a lot to the company. And we want to show that that is something that, 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 that matters to us. The company in South Carolina, when we took it over, had all temps working there. And that was done as a cost saving move. They believe when they move the company and purchase the company that it's just cheaper to hire people in South Carolina than it is to hire them in Massachusetts. And I think that is nominally true, but I, and I don't mean you get what you pay for in terms of any way implying that people from South Carolina are less worthy than people in Massachusetts. But what I mean is someone in Massachusetts who's done the job for 25 years is worth more than someone who you could pay two or $3 less in South Carolina to do the same job. In 20 years, they'll have the same skills and the same knowledge, but you have to work with them along that learning curve. So the first thing we did was we made a move to hire people permanently. And that involved, as I think you're implying, you know, about letting a lot of people go. There was the time when the guy, when, when one guy who worked for us was on break and he took his break it was supposed to be 10 minutes. We have a 10 minute paid break, but you have to, you know, adhere to the 10 minutes, take a break, et cetera. And he was 25 minutes back from his break. And we said, what happened? And he said, oh, uh, the biscuits at McDonald's weren't, weren't ready. They had to make a fresh batch. And I said, that sounds like a good problem for the weekend, but you get a 10 minute break here. You're, you know, people don't necessarily all understand what it, what it means to have a job and to work and to be responsible. And we have cultivated an employment base that is that gives their heart to the company. When they're there, look, I don't when my work day ends, I continue thinking about it. I'm the owner of a business. The stress, the concerns, the worries, that's always on me. But I don't want that to be the case with my employees. When they clock out, I think it's healthy for them to worry about their kids or a ball game or whatever it is that people are people are into. And not think about it. I think folks who get too caught up in what's going on at work generally results in in um, in burnout and in squabbling, pettiness, 
and people getting overly, you know, you get, you, get, you get cabin fever to some degree. So we do things like we force folks to use their vacation every year. There's no rollover. And that's not because we can't necessarily use the work or we wouldn't want more time. And it doesn't mean there haven't been some times when we said, all right, this year we'll give you a rollover because it's suddenly Christmas week and we're really busy, even though it's slower. But in general, we force them to use their time because people need to take their time. People need a break. And even though operating a braid floor is a very kind of singular experience where you're out there on the floor with a hook and you're tending to certain machines as they run out, you need to refill them. It is kind of solitary in a way. You put your headphones on and you just kind of get in the zone. It also is, you know, it's you're wearing headphones to protect your protect your ears and such, but it's loud in there and it's we're air conditioned, so it's not awful, but it's not, you know, sixty-eight degrees in there. It's it can get it can get a little much. So we need people to take their break. But I think it's the idea of cultivating good people who show to us that they are caring about what they're doing. There's a big difference between look, you're doing this podcast right now and you and I have known each other for a long time, but you could be rudimentarily asking me questions and not really listening or caring, just getting through your list, but you want to, you're, you're, you're caring about what you're doing as you do with everything, whether you're, you know, programming uh, websites or whether you're writing articles or whether you're printing or whether you're running, you know, an organization, you give that to what you have. And so we have folks that show us they're willing to do that. We reciprocate. And even in this tough time, which has been tough, you know, we certainly were not able um, to to give folks some of the raises we normally otherwise might in a normal year. Things have been slower. It's, you know, it's a tough time. People are nervous. People are stressed. People are worried about getting sick. Uh, but in our company, and really, I don't want to get broader than this, but in society in general, in this pandemic, this is a time to be responsible to your fellow people and to not bring disease around, to not be responsible, to wear your mask, et cetera. And so you need people to have that buy-in to the larger the larger concerns that we have to keep us all safe, keep us all going. I love so many of the thoughts and messages that you just expressed in that sequence, David. I am personally such a huge fan of empathy in the workplace, and you really demonstrated and gave just very practical examples of what it means to be an empathetic uh, leader and to lead with empathy and to know that these are human beings that are on your team and it is not based on a spreadsheet. And I really appreciate that you're describing how that has turned into success for ELC, that you can have people who express a personal issue and you can roll with them and say, we've got your back. And you know that they will in turn have the back of of the company in mind when uh, needed. I love that you have a kind of a forced take time off uh, routine that is so important um, that you that you acknowledge and even support the concept of life outside of the workplace. That's all that's all really dynamite. What's wonderful is that it's the stereotype of a, you know, a very old company running, you know, old equipment might be different than that. And you're, I think, a very contemporary business owner because of your thoughtfulness. So my hat's off to you uh, in that. And actually, regarding the employment, it was the opposite I was implying, which is, isn't it difficult to find people um, to that, that, that want to be trained 
actually, in how to run this equipment and, and work on it. It, it certainly is. Um, don't get me wrong. We, we have to hire often four or five to get one. Um, and even that ratio, I would, uh, I'd be happy with. Uh, but once you find someone that's good, you're, you're there. And you want people, I think you raise a good point. It's, it's not like um, you know, some high school, I worked you know, in an ice cream store. That was my, one of my high school jobs. And there's a very set definition of what that means. You need to have, you know, you have to be able to be nice behind the counter. You need to be able to have integrity to run the register. And you need to be able to carry ice cream tubs around and, and to do those things. How do you make an ad to someone to run a braiding machine? or to do the steps that are set up for that. So what you really need are, yes, you have to be, you have to have some dexterity and you have to be agile. Um, the braid hook is a, uh, is a unique tool. I've learned to use it myself and I've done it myself as well. I spent uh, many a day out on that floor myself. I think it's important to know what people are doing. Um, I'm not a great sewing machine operator by any stretch in the world. I would be, I would not last in a factory for, uh, for very long, <laughs> even a day, but I know how to do it, and I know what's expected, and I can I can show folks that I that, that I can do those things too. You know, I, I had I did pick up my MBA along the way in my career, and so I learned about these um, sort of concepts, which are which are very theoretical. And the folks that I was in school with were I was sort of different in that I had my own business, and I with the time I sort of went to potentially broaden my options and give me you know, other places if I wanted to move on from the family business. And what I realized was that the skills I learned were very applicable to what I wanted to do in my, in my own company. And that it's hard when you're learning about operations management not to be thinking about the, uh, the lab I have <laughs> during the day of my actual own company and to apply it to that. So it was a natural fit for me. I was actually very lucky that when I finished that program, I realized I'm ready to dedicate my life to this family business for sure and not go elsewhere. Uh, and that was on the heels of, uh, you know, only a few years before we picked up, picked up rice, rice braid. But I do know that a lot of my other peers, it was all very theoretical. They had not, they had been, you know, account managers a lot. I did it at, at NYU. So a lot of them worked on wall street and in finance. Um, and so they had a very removed understanding of what concepts meant. Total quality management is something that was very big back then. And uh, those concepts, I think to some degree, we're talking about sort of the, uh, the evolution of a lot of those concepts, but being, you know, being humane and trying to be empathetic toward the folks that you're working with and understanding what it means to those folks uh, is something that you really can only learn through the practice of actually doing it and then seeing the, re the rewards. And I think that is the path to successfully manufacturing in the U.S. There's always a place to go cheaper. There's always a place to find cheaper labor. Although I think that what a lot of other companies are realizing is that the cheapness of those other places has bottomed out to some degree. Um, and that if you're manufacturing, certainly in China, the cost of living and the cost of manufacturing has gone up. Transportation costs had been going up until the pandemic and the price of, uh, of fuel went down. But even, you know, made in Vietnam or, you know, made in, in other areas, they've gone kind of as cheap as they can go. And I think that people are now seeing diminishing returns. And I've seen a lot of, you know, folks doing more manufacturing in the U.S., not just for the concepts I've talked about, but for control of the, of the supply chain, for better turnaround, for certainly the quality is there and the service Look, we're ultimately all in the service industry we're making our customers happy by what we do uh and if you're not then with very few exceptions you will not have success i once asked um, the operator of a hundred year old uniform company 
you know, what's it like to be operating a hundred-year-old uniform company? And he said, the only thing you're guaranteed about being a hundred-year-old uniform company is that you'll die a hundred-year-old uniform company. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder, as you look to the future now, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenges for yourself in the next decade? It sounds like you've really organized, ab absorbed this other operation, and now, what, 14, 15 years later, everything's humming along literally and figuratively because you operate these machines that <laughs> bang around. <laughs> and um, that's well said. But over the next decade, where you know where do you see industry uh, shifting or uh, maybe the Department of Defense, Defense since that's such a big part of, of what you do? Mm -hmm. Where do you see the big challenges? I think the big challenges are, number one, folks, and this is a an ongoing trend, but certainly the pandemic has ex accentuated exacerbated. it, uh, exacerbated it, exactly. Folks are getting away from dressing up. People are getting away from dress uniforms. When we first came into the, I first came into this industry, there was a big move away from sort of uniform to the idea of image wear, and that what you were presenting was branding through your apparel. And that is incredibly important, and it means something. You know, on 9-11, I want to be told, all right, get out of town and go march over the Brooklyn Bridge by a police officer wearing a uniform that implies control and knowledge as opposed to um, somebody in a tracksuit telling me to go, you know, you need to have those signifiers of what things mean. But I think folks, so that's a struggle as folks don't necessarily realize or understand the value of that to folks. Um, I think the other struggle we have is as the world gets smaller through technology, it does move us, to, you know, the increasing move toward a global economy means that you have to be sharper, you have other threats, and you have substitutes. For us, it's been an opportunity. We still, I talked about where we manufacture is being against the curve. We export quite a bit. Um, I ship to many, many uh, uh, foreign countries for their, you know, foreign airlines, for their, uh, for cruise lines, for hospitality, for uh, graduation robes. I even manufacturers that are making I that are U.S. companies. We ship our U.S. braid to their offshore manufacturers because that piece is, is is what they need. So for us, that challenge has really been an opportunity that we try to avail ourselves of. And the continuing continuing reaching of those markets is a uh, is an area that we're very 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 much focused on. So you've got product manufactured here going to a overseas manufacturer who's then assembling the finished good and shipping it right back to the U.S. potentially. Potentially, correct. Globally, in some cases, you know, there are other uh, other markets, but yes. And the rest of the materials are not, not made in the U.S. We're sort of, I wouldn't even say we're the icing on the cake. We're more like the candles on the icing. Like, you know, everything is made and it's a plain blue uniform or plain black uniform. And then our items are what's needed. So we first took over rice. I was getting calls from customers who would then send the police chief my number and he would call and scream at me, you know, or, or just, and I would say, look, I, I would try to convince them I'm the solution to the problem. I'm, you know, you got to give me some space. And they mostly got it. I think people get that, you know, you're earnest and you're working and you talk to them in the way I'm talking to you now that I'm, I could just be a liar, but I do have a history of producing things. And here we are, it's now 15 years later and we've, and we've made it work. Uh, but at the time it was certainly, it was certainly work to convince folks of that. But getting back to your question, yes, we do send our component to a mill in, let's say, China, and they make everything else there with fabrics that are probably made, if not in China, but certainly in Southeast Asia. And then they make them all, and then they take our braid and 
sew it on there and that's a finished garment how do companies find you nowadays david because it's uniform we are it's a lot of repeat business it's not like fashion where something can be really hot and then you can just be done uh certain braids we've been making for a very long time the california highway patrol uses a very unique braid that is iconic it was iconic when they had the tv show i think they may have had a reboot of the tv show but they're still wearing it when they patrol up and down the uh the the highways of california and so we have a lot of repeat customers that way we have a great sales team my father is still very much at work and working as a sales person. My sister Jennifer works for us as a salesperson. They reach out. They have contacts. We have um, we have databases of information about who wears what that we use and we try to keep on, on top of things. Uh, and we increasingly do have um, through our through our web presence, uh, we reach folks that way. Folks find us, as you well know. Uh, you can market and you can push. But sometimes if you just end up in the right place in Google, people will find us and we make a unique product and we have the reputation in the industry for fulfilling things. And even customers, we recently had a customer, obviously I won't name names, uh, but went out of business. And the person who worked for them, she resurfaced at a new company this week and said, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm working with this new company, we have a new program, but she's still in the industry and she knows that we can help her solve a problem. She doesn't need to worry about whether she's going to sell her end user on an image look that's going to contain a certain braid that won't come through because we can't make it. We control our own operations. And so getting back to what I learned as to a large degree, as much as possible, the more you can control of your production, the better. Which really is the reason behind buying rice. Uh, but also, I would say, you have to know what, know what you're not good at and not go into things that you shouldn't be doing. You know, I use a pen every day. I don't need to like find a bird and take a quill and buy an inkwell and <laughs> use that pen. It's cheaper for me to go to Staples and pen, you know, spend 20 cents on a pen. I could make my own pens, like I make my own lunch every day, but that's not gonna be where my time is best spent. And so if I spend time going after things that I don't need to be doing, that's not in the wheelhouse. The best way to approach it is not trying to think of a hundred new products to to sell you're saying but to continue to be good at the ones you're at and to provide that solution to the best of your abilities every time that is correct that is correct the in in, in business school like they, they uh it's called core your your core competency you have what you're really good at and that's your skill and you can expand that and we did with braiding to weaving which again i recognize sounds like the same thing but hopefully now at this point folks will uh will have some some sense of the differentiation, but that was a big next step outward and also a risk that we're going to go in that area. But once you have that area, you grow. So we made certain woven products and now we've expanded them. We've made other, other trimmings and weavings that aren't even just for stripes, but you try to go one step. So even if it's a new product, it will be made for a customer that you already know, or you would take a product that you know and make small modifications, but find new customers for it. You wouldn't go into, for example, well, I'm in, a, I'm in a car. I used to be in a car every day. And there's a seatbelt. That's a woven product. I'll now make seatbelts. Yeah, we could make seatbelts on our machinery, but I don't know anything about the auto industry. I don't know what's required of that. I don't know what the safety procedures are. And uh, so we, that's, that's, that would be a step too far. But maybe the next generation will be making seatbelts. Who knows? Although, who knows what the next generation will be driving, if at all. <laughs> or driving at all, right? I picture that um, David Ludmar's children will just be sitting in a driverless car and 
<laughs> and the software will be driving them to their destination. That seems like the way we're going, yeah. Yeah, but they'll still be wearing a seatbelt. They hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> even I mean, they say now that self the self driving vehicles are safer than the regular ones, but they're not foolproof. Right. So we may not need seatbelts. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, David. Really appreciate your time and the insights into the uniform accessories and braid world. I appreciate it, Rick. It was uh, it's always great to talk with you. It's great to see you in person as well. Hopefully we get to do that at some point. Mm-hmm.